And hello, everyone. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And uh, I want to describe this scene for you that comes near the beginning of the new documentary film, The Act of Killing. The scene takes place on this little enclosed patio above a shop in the city of Medan, Indonesia. And there's this very friendly man talking to the camera. He's about 70 years old with snowy hair and a very youthful face. And uh, he's snappily dressed in white pants and a bright batik shirt. And he's saying, they died unnatural deaths. They arrived here perfectly healthy. At first we beat them to death, but there was too much blood. So when we cleaned it up, it smelled awful. To avoid the blood, I used this system. Can I show you? The man takes a thin wire and secures one end to a post, and then he loops the wire around the neck of a friend who's sitting on the patio and pretends to pull hard like he's strangling the guy. This is how to do it without too much blood, he says. Both he and his friend are smiling. The man giving the demonstration is Anwar Congo, and he's describing events from 50 years ago. That's when he and many other members of army-backed death squads wiped out their political opposition in Indonesia. In a few short months of 1965 and 1966, they killed anywhere from half a million to two million people or more. The estimates vary widely. The victims were members of the Communist Party, or people alleged to be, their friends, their family members, other left-wing political activists, land reformers, educators, and also ethnic Chinese, who were often accused of being communist sympathizers in those days. And along with all those killed, many more people were tortured, imprisoned, and driven from their homes and jobs. This was the beginning of the period known as the New Order in Indonesia, led by the dictator Suharto, who ruled the country for the next 30 years. Under the New Order, the killers were hailed as patriots and heroes, and many went on to prominent and prosperous lives. The survivors, on the other hand, kept quiet for fear it could all happen again. The world pretty much ignored the genocide, and Indonesia moved on, or seemed to. Meanwhile, uh, in the movie, On That Patio, we're now listening to Anwar Congo uh, say that he tried to put his death squad days behind him with a little booze, a little pot, and a lot of dancing. Now he's executing some nifty cha-cha-cha steps where he used to execute people. He's a happy man, says his friend. When Joshua Oppenheimer began making this documentary around 2005, he wanted to film the testimony of the survivors, but he soon found that most of them were too scared to talk. I mean, many of the killers and their sponsors were still all around, often in positions of power. So some of the victims suggested that Oppenheimer seek out former death squad members and ask them what happened. They'd be only too happy to talk. And sure enough, they were. In fact, like Anwar Congo, a lot of them were pleased to show Oppenheimer exactly how they tortured and killed. They liked this idea of commemorating their deeds in a movie. So Oppenheimer proposed that they go all the way, staging their own reenactments however they wished. They could even spice things up using genre conventions from their favorite Hollywood movies. The result is the most talked-about documentary of recent years. It mixes straight documentary footage with sometimes fanciful dramatizations and provides a rare look at genocide through the eyes and imaginations of the perpetrators themselves. Werner Herzog, who acted as executive producer with Errol Morris, says, I have not seen a film as powerful, surreal, and frightening in at least a decade. It is unprecedented in the history of cinema. The Act of Killing opens this month in San Francisco, in the Monterey Bay area, 
And today on the 7th Avenue Project, we'll hear a conversation with director Joshua Oppenheimer. Joshua, when you first approached these men who were involved in the mass killings of uh, 1965-1966 in Indonesia, did you simply start asking them about their role, uh, or were you kind of shy about it? Did you take a while to get around to that subject? Yeah, at first I was shy, because the openness of the perpetrators was not something I'd experienced when I began this. So the first time I, I met perpetrators, they were neighbors in a plantation village that I was filming in with a community of survivors, and they would send me to film their neighbors in the, who they knew were perpetrators in the hope that I might be able to find out some of the details of how their loved ones died. And I began very cautiously by saying, you know, what did you do for a living? Very simple, neutral questions that I hoped would sort of lead to talking about the past. And I was shocked that the first answers to those questions, you know, were always these boastful accounts of killing, I guess because the killing was the most significant thing that these men had ever done and the basis for any career they had after that. When one of these perpetrators first opened up to you and calmly, maybe even proudly, described killing people, what what was your feeling? It was unbearable and shocking. And the very first perpetrator who, who told me about his role in the killings was a neighbor of mine, and he did so in front of his granddaughter, who was 10 years old and looked on board. As this old man, he was not wearing any shirt, started pointing at his muscles and saying, look, I'm still pretty strong. I could still kill people if I wanted to, laughing. And I was both horrified by the stories he told me and full of questions. You know, how does he want his granddaughter to remember him? How can a man speak this way in front of his granddaughter? What cognitive dissonance is going on here that he could, you know, be talking in front of his granddaughter, who presumably he loves, um, about such awful things. Well, in the course of this film, which is only roughly two hours out of hundreds of hours that you collected over a number of years, right, we get to see a lot of guys talking quite happily, sometimes in front of their family members, sometimes in front of the public, about helping to, quote-unquote, exterminate people. We get to see your main protagonist, Anwar Congo, you know, proudly describe his system for strangling people with a wire. We get to see he and his fellow death squad members, or former fellow death squad members, reenacting torture and murder scenes. We get to see one paramilitary guy, part of this, this group, um, happily, you know, reminisce about raping people during a reenactment of a, a village massacre that actually took place. We see well-to-do officials hanging out with these guys and praising them. And then, while all of that is sort of historical, retrospective stuff, we actually get to see at least one crime in progress, which is the shakedown of some Chinese shopkeepers. Is this in Medan, the city of Medan? Yeah. And it's a horrible scene. You can see the pain on these poor guys' faces. They're poor men who are being uh, forced to fork out sums of money uh, under threat and smile while doing so. My question for you is, you stood by and filmed all of this, you know, day in, day out, year after year. Um, Did you become inured to it? I don't think so, actually. It became increasingly haunting and painful over in a cumulative way. I 
I actually found that the further I went into the process, the more I was haunted by it. As Anwar, in the final, what is the final act of the film, throws himself despairingly into into reenacting the atrocities that he committed in in the office where he was torturing and killing people. It gave me terrible nightmares. I, I was close to him by that point. I think, in a way, maybe the reason I did not grow inured to it is one: for never for a second did I suspend my moral judgment of the crimes these men were committing. On the one hand, and two, I became closer and closer to the men I was filming. And when you become close to somebody, when you become intimate with somebody, when you get to know somebody, you of course become vulnerable to them, and you become vulnerable to the things that they're telling you. So if they tell you something awful, it's painful to hear. And I think that closeness to them is to, to men who've done really awful things. That is what is distinctive about the film. So I, I think that that meant that it actually became more and more painful as time went on, rather than less and less. How does it feel now? It's still it's still painful. You know, there's I'm not a filmmaker. I'll just say something about a couple points you made as you were as you were asking me your previous question. You know, you mentioned that we see Anwar proudly talk about something, or we see a man happily describe a crime. You know, I think one of the real insights that the film affords is that the sort of boastful celebration of atrocity is not necessarily a sign of genuine pride. It actually can be defensive. It can be a desperate effort on behalf, on the part of the killers to convince themselves that what they did was right. You see, Adi, one of the killers in the film, says, you know, killing is the worst thing you can do, but if you're paid well enough to do it and you can get away with it, go ahead and do it. But then you must come up with an excuse so you can live with yourself. You must make up an excuse that you can, so that you can live with yourself. And this gets to the heart of what the film is about, about how we tell ourselves stories and lies to justify our actions. And the justification, which as it becomes more of, of killing, as it becomes more and more strident, becomes boastful and seems like pride. But it turns out, I think, that in fact, it's the opposite. It's, it's a desperate attempt to run away from what they've done. These men have never been forced to admit what they did was wrong, and they desperately avoid doing so, lest they should have to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and see a mass murderer. One of the stunning things, aside from the seemingly cheerful and very open way in which they describe what we think of as atrocities and crimes against humanity, is the fact that they don't work very hard to justify themselves. They don't say things like, oh, the communists we killed were themselves threatening our very lives and our very existence. They don't go into long political justifications. They don't talk about their backgrounds, uh, at least you know, in, in, in what you include in this film, uh, that would make us sympathize with them in any way whatsoever. So that, that's also a shocking thing. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, a, that's an excellent point. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting as to, as to why. I think that maybe has to do with the fact that because they're gangsters, because in North Sumatra in particular, the army recruited its killers from the ranks of thugs and gangsters. Thugs and gangsters are not necessarily out to look good in the eye of the public. They're, they're out to, in fact, the basis for their power is fear. Um, the reason that Anwar and his, or Herman and Safid are able, two of the younger generation of gangsters in the film, the reason they're able to walk through a market and shake, shake down Chinese market sellers is because they're feared. Well, one of the things that the film witnesses, I suppose, 
is the ways in which the boastful and celebratory stories about atrocities exist in an economy of fear. They exist as a currency in, in, a, in an economy of fear. They exist as instruments to keep the rest of the society afraid. Yeah, and, and that raised a question for me. Um, I think you make it plain in the film, or maybe it's interviews that I've heard <laughs> after seeing the film. But in any case, you've made it clear that um, these guys may be encouraged to tell stories like this uh, in order to maintain this quiet reign of terror uh, because they operate, in a way, on behalf of the government, or they have in the past, um, maintaining order, <laughs> let's say. And in fact, the uh, you know the name for the Suharto government uh, over those 30 years was New Order. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And these guys were part of that, that order. But that does raise the question. I mean, we've, we've learned to um, suspect people who brag about doing great things, but a lot of us are very credulous when people start saying they've done really bad things. I mean, why would they ever embellish uh, in the direction of bad? Why would anybody invent a story about being a mass murderer? But but should we suspect that these guys are exaggerating what they did? Well, I certainly suspected it when I began, as I was filming, as I, as I was meeting them. And it was pretty straightforward to address that. You simply interview people who knew each other or knew of each other separately and you ask them to corroborate each other. You, you see if, if they can corroborate each other's stories. So I, I certainly had that question at first when I, was, when I was hearing the boasting, because it's so unusual to hear boasting. Some occasionally people will react to the, will react to the film saying, you know, how, how do we know this is all true? But I think after people have seen the film, if they come away with that reaction, the answer is probably, you know it's true, but you would wish that it weren't. Did you make any effort to ascertain whether Anwar Congo's reputation, uh, that he killed hundreds, maybe a thousand people personally, was accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I interviewed Adi and Anwar and uh, Ibrahim Sinik and a newspaper journalist, Sawadwan Sidigar, all of whom are in the film, all of whom work together separately, without them knowing that I was interviewing the other, to try and understand what kind of killing was happening in the office, who was doing the killing among the among Anwar's death squad, and the numbers of people killed per day and over how long a period. I made actually a spreadsheet based on each of their each of their testimony. It was a morbid pretty morbid spreadsheet. And in fact the numbers were well above a thousand. They were in the, the several thousands, but that the that the group killed in the office, and then I divided it by a factor of the number of people who were in the death squad uh, actively killing, which was five, and I divided it by three, just out of caution, and came to the number of about a 1,000 for Anwar. But in fact, in the film, the only person who articulates the number of a 1,000 for Anwar is actually not, not me, and, uh, but, but rather the people who are producing the talk show the state television produces a talk show essentially to hype Anwar and his friends, or to, uh, uh, to hype the act of killing, actually, before the act of killing is made, to, 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 because the fact that prominent death squad leaders and uh, politicians from North Sumatra are making a film dramatizing their role in, in the genocide was big, was big news in North Sumatra, and it became the subject of a state television talk show, which we see in the film. And then you hear the crew of the talk show, the director and the producer, sitting in the control room, speculating, asking how many people did he really kill, and, and they come to the number of a 1,000. That's where that number comes from, I suppose, 
in the film, but it's close to the number that I came to when I was doing my calculation based on the testimony of everybody who was in that office who's still alive. Mm. Mm. Um, you mentioned that the, the film that you and these guys were making together was starting to get some notice and some publicity. Now, the film, as people conceived of it at that time, was a kind of fantasy film that these guys, uh, Anwar Congo and friends, were making up. Um, no, it wasn't. Oh, am no, I, wasn't. I'm wrong about that? Yeah, it, it wasn't. As I worked my way across the region, asked by survivors from the plantation where I started this journey and then the human rights community in Jakarta, as I worked my way across the region filming every perpetrator I could find and encountered first with shock their boastfulness and then became accustomed to it, and my question started to shift from what happened in 1965 to what's happening now that these men should boast. Why are they boasting? For whom are they boasting? What are the effects of their boasting on society? What are their, the effects of their, boasting on them, of their boasting on themselves, on the survivors who have to hear it? Uh, how do they want their society to see them? How do they want the world to see them? How do they actually see themselves? And as, as these questions, which are fundamentally about today, about today's Indonesia, about a climate of impunity today, as these questions came to the fore, I started proposing very simply and directly the filmmaking method to the perpetrators themselves as a way of understanding their openness, as a response to their openness. I started to say, look, you've participated in one of the biggest killings in human history. Your whole society is based on it. Your lives are shaped by it. You want to show me what you've done. I want to understand what it means to you and to your society, so show me what you've done, however you wish. I will film the process. I will film the reenactments. I will combine the two and create a documentary that answers these questions, questions of how you want to be seen and how you see yourself. So the method was not a lure to get them to open up. It was, in fact, a response to their openness. It was a response to the fact that after I would meet them, and they would both, they would typically invite me to the places where they had killed and then launch into these spontaneous demonstrations of how they killed. And trying to understand why they're so open, I propose this method. So in that sense, they never think they're making another film. Okay. And they so, never are making another film. So, so Joshua, this is interesting, and I want to explain for our, our listeners who haven't seen this film, that um, what we see in addition to what seem like straightforward documentary scenes, are a, a number of staged scenes that were in some sense conceived by these guys. Okay. Uh, uh, so that we see them uh, reenacting torture and murder scenes, but there are fantasy elements thrown in. Sometimes they're dressed like gangsters, sometimes they're dressed like cowboys, sometimes they are staging these elaborate production numbers one image that we see several times, and it's sort of the poster image for your film, it's it's set on the banks of this gorgeous, what looks like a bay, mountains in the background, glittering water. In the foreground is this fish-shaped building. It looks like a koi, and out of its mouth uh, are, are, are da these dancing showgirls, um, and there's music playing. Another, you know, very strange scene uh, is uh, set under a waterfall in this lush environment with saturated colors with a couple of uh, the main guys, Anwar Congo, a guy named Herman Koto, who likes to dress in drag. He resembles Divine from John Waters' movies. Anwar likes to dress him in drag. <laughs> <laughs> we, like, we should talk about Herman in a moment. But uh, under a waterfall, 
standing in this beautiful, misty environment uh, with uh, the song Born Free playing, beautiful girls in gowns dancing, and uh, acting out strange scenes. So I'll linger there to help explain the method. Acting out Anwar's fantasy of redemption, he imagines himself in heaven in that scene, and he goes to heaven, and there he finds his victims waiting for him with a medal, ready to present him with a medal and thank him for killing them and sending them to heaven. You see, the, the proposal was not that they simply reenact their killing, the killings, but actually make scenes about the killings in whatever ways they wish. Now, that can include the actual killing and torture, but it can also include scenes that express their feelings about the killings, and the waterfall is one of them. But there's no narrative thread that holds these scenes <laughs> together. There's no, nothing that holds them together apart from my film. Now, the scenes, uh, when I first started proposing this method, it was to perpetrators who were typically taking me to riverbanks in the countryside and showing me how they helped the army dispatch, you know, busloads of prisoners every night by cutting off their heads and throwing them in the river. This was, and, and they, would, they would simply reenact what they had done at the river. When I reached the city of Medan, which is Indonesia's third largest city, it's maybe about the size of Chicago, they, it turned out that the army had recruited its killers from the ranks of movie theater gangsters. These were gangsters who were hanging out in movies, movie theaters, selling movie, um, movie theater tickets on the black market as a sort of side source of income, but their main source of income would have been racketeering, would have been major organized crime, illegal logging, smuggling, prostitution, drugs. So they were real gangsters, but hanging out in cinemas, loving American movies, they were recruited by the army because they hated the Indonesian left, which at the time was boycotting American movies, because the head of the American Motion Picture Association in Indonesia, a guy called Bill Palmer, was widely believed to have been involved with a plot to overthrow Indonesia, the founding father of Indonesia, President Sukarno. So because of this backstory, the army knew that the movie theater gangsters had a proven capacity for violence, and didn't like the left, and so they were eligible candidates to recruit as death squad members. And then, because they had this special relationship to American movies, because Anwar and his friends loved American movies, when Anwar started looking at the, the simple reenactments, there's one at the beginning where he goes up to a roof, shows how he killed hundreds of people with wire, and then in a very straightforward way on a rooftop, I won't, I won't here give away what happens next, but as he watched this first reenactment, I think he was very disturbed watching it. And I think he was disturbed about what he did in 1965. Not, he wasn't disturbed by some kind of technical failing in the reenactment, but because he's never been forced to admit that what he did in 1965 was wrong, instead of saying what's wrong with the picture, namely that it was wrong to have killed, he displaces that, that trauma, that fear, that guilt, whatever you want to call it, on seemingly trivial details, his clothes, his hair, his acting, and proposes a series of embellishments where he starts, I think, lying to himself, really, but starts to, start to suggest that he can fix the reenactment, fix what's wrong, if he can make this more like the kind of movie that he loves. So this whole surreal process of embellishment began because Anwar and his friends had this love of American movies, where they tried to, in a way, put right what was broken, put right their past by trying to 
dramatize them in the styles of the movies that they loved. So, so you said that these stage scenes um, that go from somewhat plausible depictions of, say, torture and killing sessions to wild fantasias um, were not actually all linked together in some plot line. Now, I know you know this, that uh, after the movie came out and Anwar Congo was contacted by members of the press, he complained that the movie that he had conceived was actually a kind of love story called Arsan and Amina. Uh, he played Arsan, who is is part of the um, death squads or government, who falls in love with a, a woman who's a member of the Communist Party. Daughter uh, of a communist. Daughter of a communist. Okay. So, yeah. but, but are you saying that it's not true, that, that there was never an idea that this was going to be that, that fiction film? Yeah, it never was. Arsan and Amina was actually the name for a scenario within a much bigger filmmaking process, a much bigger film, which was basically Arsan and Amina was a title given to a series of scenes, three or four scenes, uh, dramatizing Anwar's Nightmare, which is a story of revenge. And it was written by Ibrahim Sinek, the newspaper boss. But it's only, it only accounts for you know, three or four scenes out of a great many. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and Anwar was called to a press conference by the leaders of Panchasila Youth, and this this may be it's it's worth pausing to tell the story of Anwar's reaction to the film. Sure. But um, for the longest time, when I was finishing the film in the spring of 2012, early summer of 2012, before it premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in late summer 2012, I was calling Anwar, contacting him, saying, "Look, the film is almost done." I want to screen it to you. And Anwar would say, would say again and again, no, I don't want to see it yet. I know it's going to be very painful. I know this is not going to be easy for me. I'm not ready. And that meant that when the film finally appeared at the Toronto Film Festival, every night throughout the festival I was calling him and spending about an hour at a time explaining what's in the film, how the public is reacting, what he might expect from Indonesia, including the risk that the Pancasila youth movement would blame him for making the film mm-hmm. and bringing disgrace to them. I, can, I want to jump in, uh, Joshua, and just explain for our listeners that the Pancasila youth movement is this paramilitary organization with uh, currently millions of members, but it was deeply involved in the killings back in 1965 also. Anwar was part of the Pancasila youth movement as well as one a number... One of the founders of it. One of the founders, along with a number of other characters you depict... Uh, so go on. So he, in fact, after, after the film premiered in Toronto, indeed it became a big news story in Indonesia. Um, and Pancasila Youth held a press conference where they called Anwar to talk about the film. Flanked by two senior leaders of Pancasila Youth, Anwar did what, of course, he had to do, which was to distance himself from the film and say he felt deceived. But throughout, and, and so that he would not be violently attacked for making the film. That's when he said that the film was meant to be our, called Our Son and Amina. And I, I don't think um, that that was thoroughly answered in the Indonesian press. And I, it doesn't appear anymore as in, in, in the Indonesian press. It hasn't been very widely reported uh-huh. here uh-huh. because it came from that Panchasila Youth press uh-huh. conference and people back. Uh, so it was a bit of a cover story. I, 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 it's very interesting. I, I, I'm glad but, you... But then, but, but then, of course, what matters is Anwar's reaction to the finished film after he saw it. And Anwar, after, after the press conference and after, after that event, 
said, Josh, we were in touch throughout the time, and I wasn't at all upset that he said he didn't like the film in front of Pantasila youth leaders. He had to say that. Uh, you know, a number of critics have taken from this film, based on the fact that Anwar Congo began as kind of a small-time gangster who scalped movie tickets and was a big-time lover of American movies, and uh, the fact that he has, you know, directed some of these scenes in your movie, uh, you know, these stage scenes based on, you know, <laughs> sort of archetypes from American cinema, film noir, westerns, musicals, that in fact movies are somehow complicit in the thuggery itself, that somehow violence as depicted in American movies was part of the inspiration for these crimes. Do you think they're going too far with that? Yeah, I think they are going too far with that, and I think they're missing some much more thorny and important questions in making that leap. Um, the first 30 perpetrators I, I filmed would show me how they would drag victims down to riverbanks and cut their heads off. And they were not watching movies before doing that. They were perfectly capable of killing many more people than Anwar ever killed without seeing a movie. They would just drink first. I think human beings need to distance themselves from the quintessentially human act of killing. And I say quintessentially human act because we are really the only species that kills. And yet it is a traumatic act for us. And so Anwar, he does say that he was inspired to use wire to kill, garroting to kill from watching movies. But, you know, he could have come across other other methods, or even garroting itself without watching movies. The example that most stands out in the film that Anwar gives of cinema playing a role in the killings is actually not gangster movies, but Elvis Presley musicals. He says he would watch an Elvis Presley musical in, in the cinema, which was located directly across the street from where he was torturing and killing people, leave the cinema, dance his way across the street, intoxicated by his identification with Elvis, one of his screen idols, and kill happily. Now, Elvis Presley musicals are not violent. They're just a little bit stupid. And the big risk here, I think, is not violence in movies, but rather escapist storytelling. You created a movie that is, in some sense, you know, a testimonial of actual historical events, but is in other ways a work of art. I mean, it's beautifully constructed. I think the massive praise it's getting is not just because it exposes essential history, but also because of the craftsmanship and the originality. How do you feel about creating something that on one level is beautiful, that is artful, out of some material that's this horrible? I mean, you could have gone in a very different direction and just made a very straight-up, cold, <laughs> historical artifact. <laughs> but you went somehow diff in a different direction. Is that? Do you have any qualms about that? No, because, well, first of all, it's not a historical documentary. It's not a documentary about what happened in 1965. It's a documentary about how we use storytelling to escape from painful truths about our past and about ourselves. And it's a documentary about the inevitable downward spiral of corruption and impunity that results when we build our normality on the basis of terror and lies and mass graves. So it's about Indonesia today. And that's, so that's the first important point. Mm -hmm. And the second important point is that I was asked by a community of survivors 
to create a film that comes to Indonesia like the child in the emperor's new clothes. An expose, to be sure, but not an expose of things people didn't know, and not an expose intended for foreigners, uh, audiences around the world, but an expose that comes to Indonesia and says, look at this reality, look at this painful reality, with such force, with such power, and in such an undeniable way that there's no pretending this is not the case anymore. Just like the child in the emperor's new clothes says, look, the king is naked. Everybody knew it but had been too afraid to say it. I felt my primary moral and political task was to make a film that exposes a regime of impunity and fear so that Indonesians could start to address it. It is because of the poetic force of the film and the emotional force of the film that the film is achieving that so vividly and so powerfully. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about uh, watching movies, watching TV as escapism. There's a, a very striking scene, uh, which is sort of unnecessary to say because every scene in this film is striking, but where Anwar Congo, having um, reenacted a scene in which he plays the torture victim and uh, a person who is executed by this strangulation that was his favorite method. And in the course of filming that scene, he gets very upset. Now, having staged that scene, he then shows it on a television to his two young grandsons at home. And by the way, he seems like a very loving grandfather. You show him gently instructing his grandsons not to hurt ducks and things like that. So he brings his two grandsons in, uh, puts them on his lap, shows them the scene in which he is playing a man who's being murdered. And it's a shocking scene. And he says, he smiles and says, look at granddaddy being beat up. Look at granddad being killed. What is he doing there? Well, there's one important step that, that is, needs to be added to that narrative, which is that after he plays the victim, he then, in re- direct reaction to that, devises the scene we spoke about a bit earlier where he imagines his own redemption in heaven. You see, ah. we only ever film one scene at a time, and the sequence of scenes in the film is pretty much chronological. So he would, we, he would shoot a fiction scene, then we would screen it back to him. He would think about what to shoot next, and then we would shoot that. So first he plays the victim in this film noir gangster scene. Right. He experiences some trauma. Then to cleanse himself from that or to purge that, he films this waterfall musical extravaganza. Mm. And then he watches that, and he says it's beautiful. It, it, it shows such deep emotion. But of course he's lying. Of course the emotion in the waterfall scene is utterly shallow. And he knows it. The waterfall scene offers no lasting solace, and it's not helping him. It's because it's a lie, and the thing he's trying to deal with from the very beginning in making this film is somehow his own pain, and and to somehow build up almost a sort of psychic scar tissue around the wound of of his memories to to sort of replace the, the, the shapeless horror of what he's put people through and what he dreams about in his nightmares with these relatively safe, relatively contained, relatively tame fiction scenes. So he watches the waterfall scene. I think he senses that it doesn't address the real problem that he has. So then he says, now please, Josh, put on again the scene where I'm playing the victim. Mm. And he watches that. But I think as he starts to watch that, he gets scared because he realizes the pain and trauma that that scene evoke for him because he, he experienced it while shooting the scene. So then he calls in his grandchildren, almost like human shields, almost to, to convince himself 
that it's only a movie. In mm-hmm. fact, I protest at that point. I say, Anwar, no, this is too mm-hmm. violent for mm-hmm. your grandchildren. Yeah, we can watch. hear you. We can hear you. your and voice I, coming from I, behind the camera. And I say it two or three times. But he insists, he says, no, no, it's just a movie. They'll be fine. And he brings them in, I think, in an attempt to reassure himself that it is just a movie. Right. And they, in fact, get bored because for them <laughs> it is just a movie. They don't know that it's true. They leave, go back to bed, and now he finds himself naked, if you like, with, without his human shield, without his, this, this shield, without this protection, directly confronting these images of him, of him being tortured. And then he does something interesting. He tries to create a kind of no, another kind of shield, if you like. He tries to reason it away again, the significance of this scene he's watching where he's being tortured and killed, by offering me a generic and I think ultimately dishonest confession. He says, now I feel what my victims feel. And I think that if my intention in making this film had been to leave, to, sorry, to lead a perpetrator to his remorse, I would have said, yes, thank you, finally, you feel empathy, great. But because my intention from the outset was to expose a regime of impunity on behalf of the survivors, his confession there where he saying, now I feel what my victims feel, don't I, Josh, felt fundamentally dishonest. And I felt I had to address it. I had to speak from my heart and say, no, of course you don't feel what your victims feel, because they were being killed. And you're just acting. And if I were to say anything else, it would be tantamount to saying, yes, what you put people through was no worse than acting in a movie, which is exactly why he brings in the grandchildren. You know, speaking of, of remorse, there is there is an arc in this film uh, with your central character, Anwar Congo, who we first meet, you know, describing seemingly proudly how he killed people. And we end with a scene in the same place, uh, this terrace, above a shop, which was at one point a, a slaughterhouse, where he, I don't want to give away the ending, but where he shows signs of maybe some serious uh, regret. regret. Now, one thing I noticed, um, we don't know as an audience uh, what order these scenes took place in, and, and the suggestion is that that's sort of at the very end, but then I couldn't help noticing that the one way I could track chronology was the color of his hair, because it starts out gray, and at some point, in order to play himself as a younger man, he dyes it black, and then at some points, the dye is clearly disappearing. Now, in this scene, the hair is gray. That suggests that this took place earlier in the film. No, it suggests that it took place, it was the very last thing I filmed, um, because Anwar, I would I filmed with Anwar over a five year period. Right. We would film for three months, four months at a time. Then I would return home to London, where I was based during most of the shooting. Uh, work through the material for anywhere between three and six months. Go back. His hair would have grown out. Okay. <laughs> and then when we were ty- when he wanted to do more reenactments, when we were doing more reenactments, he would dye it again. Okay. So the previous scene where he watches with his grandchildren, the scene where he watches himself play the victim with his grandchildren. That actually, I thought, would be the last scene in the film with Anwar. And then I went back six months later to film the high-ranking politicians uh, and and political leaders who I knew that it was dangerous to film them, and I knew that we might lose our permission to film and even be arrested uh, in the course of that shooting. So I saved that to the end. And if there's anything out of chronology in the film, it is those cameos with the high-ranking politicians, the vice president of Indonesia, the um, 
governor of North Sumatra and so forth. But that, that was six months after the previous scene. His hair had grown white again. And ever since the beginning of the process, five years earlier, I had been struggling to get back into that office where Anwar had killed. I'd only been able to film there once, the very first day I met Anwar, um, because the owner of the of the, what's now a handbag shop downstairs had a superstition against photography, actually. <laughs> and, wow. wow. And had been away wow. the day that we filmed, and his shop assistant, his shop manager, had let us in and actually had been uh, had been reprimanded for letting us in when his when the boss got back. And we'd never been allowed back in, and only at the end of that last shoot with the politicians did we notice that the shop, a new shop, had opened. And if you, in that place, um, the new shop owner was happy to let us in. So I brought Anwar back, naively thinking that this, this scene might be earlier in the film. Ah, okay. I asked him, would you just walk through the office quietly and tell me what happened here? You see, when I filmed there the first time with Anwar, I didn't know what had happened there. It was my first trip there. I had no idea. Ah. So I wanted, and the stories, therefore, that Anwar was telling, he, he had not told many of them in years. They came out really incoherently with me having to ask a lot of questions, even to understand forensically, if you love with a kind of forensic interest, what actually took place in this slaughterhouse. So I, ne- I felt it would be useful to get back after spending five years filming story after story that had taken place in that office. I thought it would be useful to get back and have him coherently say, this is where this happened, this is where that happened, this is where this happened. And as he's trying to do that, suddenly as though blindsided, as though totally caught totally off guard, he starts to retch. It's as though his body is physically rejecting the words that he's speaking. The words he's speaking are similar to the words he's spoken throughout the whole process, but his body no longer no longer obeys. He gets a case of the dry heaves and, um, you know, bends over, and you film him as he goes through these convulsions. And that's, you know, the final scene. Um, you know, that terrace that I, we're describing is this innocuous-looking place. It, there's no evidence left there of the fact that many people died there, murdered. And, you know, given that at least 500,000, maybe a million, maybe even 2 million people were killed in this relatively short period... There must be countless places like that around Indonesia, you know, that are this kind of hidden killing field um, sitting just below the surface. Yeah, I think that's true of almost everywhere in the world. Ah. Um, I, I, you know, our society is built on the twin holocausts of slavery and the Native American genocide. How many spots are left empty or left in memoriam for quiet reflection of the atrocities that must have taken place there? Very, very, very few. My, my father's father is from Frankfurt, and my father's mother's from Berlin. My first trip to Germany was in my early 20s. I have a cousin who somehow, whose branch of the family survived in some extraordinary way and still in, in Germany. My father's parents narrowly escaped the Holocaust. And when I first went to Germany, I had this peculiar feeling of this is where we come from, and all this killing happened here. And my cousin took me around Frankfurt showing me sort of compulsively showing me all the spots that had been Gestapo torture centers or uh, places where Jews gathered before they were deported to Auschwitz. And I had this feeling of, you know, he, but the spots he was pointing to, they were, they were, one might be a Kentucky fried chicken, another might be a bank, another might be 
a public square with people sitting outside enjoying their lunch. And I had this feeling that every place that human beings do this to each other ought to be left empty, not to punish the Germans or to punish the perpetrators, but to force us as humans to live with and remember the consequences of these actions. Mm. Yeah, I think for a lot of us, we couldn't help while watching your film thinking about Nazi Germany. Um, obviously, very different cultures, very different times in history, and we could go on and on. But the way in which the Indonesia you depict has gone on about its business, let the killers live their lives, often you know, respectable lives, well-to-do lives, honored by society, the way the victims are still afraid to speak in some cases. Uh, is this what the Third Reich would have looked like if it hadn't been defeated in World War II? Is this what Germany might have been? Exactly. As I began this journey in collaboration with survivors and tried to film with them and would be arrested by the military every time we would start to film and would meet on their on the survivors' behalf just to try and find out how their loved ones had been killed, these perpetrators who were boasting. I had precisely that feeling, that this is like I've wandered into Germany 40 years after the Holocaust and found the Nazis still in power. And you can imagine in such a situation, the, there might be an official history where the Holocaust is not discussed, or it's discussed only as a kind of mysterious but glorious chapter in the nation's past. But then you can imagine that all the former SS officers who carried out the Holocaust might have been encouraged to go back to their communities and boast about what they'd done, both so that the rest of the society would remain afraid of what might happen, and also so that they can live with themselves. So you can imagine the SS officers who carried out the Holocaust going back to the societies and boasting so that they would be these feared proxies of the state and so that they can live with what they've done. I still nurse a hope or a belief that I think comes from storybooks that everybody who perpetrates something terrible has to pay in some fashion or other that the arc of history may be long but it does bend toward justice but watching this film i mean anwar congo yes he's troubled yes he has some scruples now just emerging but he's led a pretty happy i mean a, a pretty decent life you have another character adi what's his last name adi he is a, an accomplice, a, a colleague, a former colleague of Anwar's uh, from the death squads, who is a very respectable, well-to-do guy. You show him in a fancy shopping mall with his family, who murdered many people, who happily talks, by the way, uh, among the many victims during this purge were ethnic Chinese in Indonesia. They were singled out for a lot of the killing. During a campaign, he talks about uh, during a campaign called Crush the Chinese, of walking down the street, stabbing every Chinese person he met, including the father of his girlfriend. Um, this is a guy who has, you know, just buckets of blood on his hands, who says he's never lost any sleep over it, that he doesn't feel the slightest bit guilty. I mean, watching this film, I, I mean, once again, it's not the first time in my life that this idea that, that there is justice in the world um, has been shaken, but it left me feeling pretty despondent. What about you? There's a few different issues you raise here, all of which are really important. First of all, I think we cling to the notion that good wins in the end in order to reassure ourselves that we 
ourselves are good, that our societies are not built on the basis of atrocity and violence. Everything we buy, however, is produced in places like the Indonesia of the act of killing. The shirt I'm wearing is haunted by the suffering of the people who made it. Um, Everything we buy is produced in places where there's been mass political violence, where perpetrators have won, where in their victory they've built regimes of fear so oppressive that the people who make everything we buy are too oppressed to get the human costs of what we buy, of what they make, incorporated in the price tag that we pay. In that sense, the Indonesia of the act of killing is not this distant reality on the other side of the world, which is interesting as a case study, like what if the Nazis had won? But rather, what if the Nazis had won is the underbelly of our everyday normality, our everyday reality. We depend on men like Anwar and his friends for our everyday living. I would also say that the men in the act of killing may have escaped justice, but I don't think they've escaped punishment. Even Adi, who seems to sleep easily at night, in the sense that he is a hollow shell of a human being. That's the vision that the film shows. That's not to say that those of us who haven't killed are so much more reflective necessarily. We're not necessarily more reflective. But to be forced into numbness, because otherwise you can't live with who you are, is to not have the opportunity to be fully human. And so I think Anwar and Adi destroyed themselves utterly by participating in the killing. You also raise a question of what is justice in the sense of I mean, what is, you talk about sort of a a longing for justice, but then the question is, what is justice and what should justice be? Surely justice should be a ritual by which society, by which we humans collectively return certain kinds of behavior to the realm of the forbidden. And that does not mean that every perpetrator necessarily gets his comeuppance, um, but it means that there needs to be a process whereby certain types of behavior determined once for once and for all to be forbidden. Here in the United States, we have impunity for torture in the sense that not only have the people involved with torture not been brought to justice, but the current president has said, my policy is not to torture. Now, that means the next president could say, okay, now my policy is to torture again, which means Torture has not yet been re- returned to the realm of the forbidden here in the United States. And I just make one final point, which I think is maybe more important than all of the previous points, which is that in Indonesia today, while it's true th- these men have escaped justice, the act of killing has fundamentally changed the way Indonesia is dealing with its past, fundamentally changed the national conversation in Indonesia about the 1965-66 genocide. There was a time before the act of killing, and now there is a time afterwards. The media in Indonesia, since the film has come out, have started to produce serious, in-depth reports on the scale of special double editions of leading news magazines, in-depth special television reports, investigating the genocide as a genocide. And Indonesians all over the country are seeing the film, talking about the film, and starting to talk about things that the painful truths about contemporary Indonesia and the abuse of a traumatic past in maintaining contemporary injustice. Indonesians are starting to address and talk about these issues, issues they had been too afraid to discuss before. Do you think it matters, Joshua, whether these guys are 
ultimately prosecuted and imprisoned or punished in some formal way? Um, I think that's up to the Indonesian human rights community and to the survivors in Indonesia to determine what kind of justice they want, provided that they are not intimidated into accepting a minimum definition. That's to say that, you know, Indonesia's largest news magazine, Tempo, published 75 pages of testimony, boastful testimony from perpetrators from around the country, and showed essentially that Anwar is one of perhaps 10,000 killers across Indonesia of similar rank. And that, I think, set the tone for the discussion in the human rights community where people have said, look, we probably don't want to put everybody like Anwar and Adi on trial, to put 10,000 people, 10,000 death squad members on trial would rip the society apart and create such ill will that it would be very hard to, to, to move towards reconciliation. But the highest-ranking commanders should face trial, which is something, by the way, that's never happened here in the United States for, for torture. It didn't happen for slavery, and it hasn't happened for the, never happened for the slaughter of the Native Americans. But these high-ranking you know, when, and when we say high-ranking commanders should face trial, probably the newspaper boss in the film, a man who was the head of all the anti-communist organizations for an entire province, probably people of his rank should face some form of trial. But in the end, it's up to the survivors and the, and the human rights community to make that decision. There's one very upsetting scene. There are lots of upsetting scenes, but one that's very painful to watch. Uh, when Anwar and friends are staging... Uh, another interrogation and torture scene, a man who is a neighbor of Anwar's and is there on the set starts to tell a story about how when he was a kid, his stepfather, who was Chinese, was dragged away in the middle of the night. They found his body the next day. He was obviously a victim of these death squads. He's telling this story to two guys who could have easily been the one who killed his his stepfather. (laughs) And he's laughing nervously, painfully, while telling the story, reassuring them that he's not criticizing them in any way. Mm-hmm. And then he acts the role of the, the torture uh, victim uh, and breaks down sobbing in this scene. His way of telling them this while laughing, giddily, what was going on there psychologically, in your opinion? It's a tragic moment, and it speaks volumes about how the survivors have to live in this in this society where they have to apologize for their own trauma. So I think his laughter is somehow, it's a way of reassuring the perpetrators that, that he's not accusing them so that they don't, in fact, they, they don't, I think it's, it's all about fear, his laughter. I guess that would be one of my wishes, is that maybe we don't imprison these guys, maybe they never pay in some formal criminal justice sense, but but at least the victims should be able to speak with their righteous anger and be able to profess their their pain openly. Absolutely, absolutely. And that is exactly the space that the act of killing has opened in Indonesia. Thank you so much, Joshua. Thank you. Joshua Oppenheimer's documentary, The Act of Killing, opens over the next several weeks in the San Francisco Bay Area and the Monterey Bay Area also San Jose. You can find out more at activekilling.com. This has been the 7th Avenue Project, and you can find out more about us at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. So long until next week. Mm-hmm.